The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and because I have drifted on the show into playing probably too many Broadway clips, some of you think what I really want to do is a Broadway podcast. And you know, I I don't, because I assume there must be countless better ones than I could hope to do. But in the wake of this year's Tony Awards, I thought that just once... I might actually explicitly combine my obsessions with linguistics and with musicals and see what we might be able to learn in the process. And so here is what we're going to do. We're going to look at each of the four shows that were nominated for Best Musical. Mean Girls, SpongeBob SquarePants, the Broadway musical, Frozen, and The Band's Visit, and see what we can get from all those things linguistically. Boy, what a natural pairing. It's just like Chianti and Jodie Foster. Also, for this episode, I have agreed to erupt with not a single vulgar word. So linguistics, Broadway, and keeping it clean. Let's see how that goes. First up, Mean Girls. Yes, there's now a Broadway musical based on the Totemic movie. And we can even start with the word mean. Where did that come from? Well, I'm always talking about how the meanings of words drift in ways that we wouldn't expect, that a word is something going on, not some static thing pinned, screaming on a dictionary page. Mean starts out, believe it or not, as meaning shared by all. Isn't that interesting? So, for example, in the word common, the mun is that same little chunk. And elsewhere, it became mean. So it starts meaning shared by all. Then that meaning drifts in ways that make sense from one step to another. But after a while, you wake up and you're not in Kansas anymore. So shared by all comes to mean low quality because if something is being passed around and everybody's using it, well, it's going to get kind of worn down. Something's low quality, then it's ordinary. And you know, if you're ordinary, you know, the way people tend to be, there are various ways people tend to be. Some of them are positive. Some of them just aren't. One of them is stingy. Well, common to be stingy. It's kind of what you expect for somebody not to be stingy is maybe less expected. So ordinary went to stingy. And so this word that started out meaning shared by all as in, you know, some patch of grass or some cow or something like that ends up meaning stingy. And that actually, I didn't know this until I was around 25 or 26. That is what it still means in British. You know, if you want some quality British humor, I would not suggest, (laughs) are you being served the grand old sitcom? However, if you want my favorite British humor, I would suggest watching every episode of this. And I remember watching this exchange between um, Trevor Bannister as Mr. Lucas and the wonderful Wendy Richard as Miss Brahms, where she used the word mean. And I thought, I don't think that she means what we mean by mean. That was spontaneous, actually. So listen to this exchange that they're having in the canteen, where they're talking a little bit about money and how she uses the word mean. Well, it is one of our Grace Brothers traditions, Mr. Lucas, that the departments club together to buy a little present on these occasions. Oh, well, that's easy. Miss Brahms is the ladies' department. She can club herself together and get something really nice. Oh, you're mean as well as being oversexed. <laughs> so that's where mean stops in Brit. 
But then for us, well, if you're stingy, well, then you just kind of suck. You're not a nice person. And so we especially have that extended meaning. So that's where mean comes from. But then think about something else. You look at, you know, the two words mean and girls on the page. And if you were really just coming at it from nowhere, you're a Martian or you've had a near death experience and you're floating up on the ceiling and then you come down and you read those words. Wouldn't you read it as mean girls, mean girls? But notice that we spontaneously say mean girls and not necessarily because the movie is what has made it a thing, because now we're getting into this backshift, which is certainly a theme for this show. We say mean girls, not because it's a movie, because even if it wasn't a movie, there's something that we know of. It's the mean girl, just like they're mean boys. But you look at that title and you know immediately that it's not a movie called Mean Girls. Or if somebody thinks that's what it's called, you get the feeling they don't get around much. I'm not sure what that says about our culture, that we have this sense of bullying as so much part of the substrate. But you know right away what genre of person that's referring to. And that's the backshift because purely it's mean girls. But instead, you know that it's Mean girls, because they are a thing. This backshift is endlessly fun. The episode that I did on that, that was now two Septembers ago. That was the one called Word Sex, in case any of you haven't gotten to it. That's actually my favorite show, because that's the one where I felt like the show kind of became mine. And I still get all these fun backshift examples from all of you. And I want to give you a couple just because they're kind of fun. For example, Christopher Putnam, thank you for this one. This is from A Free Soul, which is an early talkie. Boy, they talkie too much in this one. I'm guessing here, I think A Free Soul is 1931. This is one where the best thing about it is Lionel Barrymore doing a big courtroom scene at the end. The rest of it, well, only if you really like Norma Shearer, or if you want to hear Leslie Howard, Ashley from Gone with the Wind, playing another role where you'll see how very little range he had. And you can hear some of that in this scene. This is Norma Shearer and Leslie Howard, and they're talking. Listen to how she talks about a certain kind of bread that's popular in San Francisco where this movie is set. Your grandgirl, Jen, crazy about you. But you made a jumping jack out of me the last two or three months. What's it all mean? I just don't want to get married to her. I don't want life to settle down around me like a pan of sourdough. I don't want it one little bit. I've never heard of sourdough, but that's because it wasn't sourdough yet. Isn't that cute? Here's another one. This is Father of the Bride, not the Steve Martin remake, but the original, which actually I don't find as good. But it is 1950, and that means that Spencer Tracy is talking in 1950, because that's when the movie was made. Listen to him here when he's talking to Elizabeth Taylor, who's playing his daughter. What's happened to you? You look different. I do? Yeah. Look all lit up inside. <laughs> You're not wearing your usual deadpan look. That how did I ever get into this family look? Oh, Pops. Did you hear that? Deadpan. Today we would say deadpan, but he says deadpan because the expression was newer. Just little things that you notice in a movie like that after you finish looking at Vicente Minnelli's beautiful sets. Anyway, want to hear something from the Mean Girls show? It's got its moments. This is when the Lindsay Lohan character gets to know Regina George. Actually, in this section of the song, not Regina, but her minions. What are they, Gretchen and Karen? That is Karen Smith, the dumbest person you will ever meet. I once saw her put a D in the word orange. 
My name is Karen. My hair is shiny. My teeth are perfect. My skirt is tiny. It barely covers my perky hiney. That's it. What was it? Amanda Seyfried as Karen, that character. That's who that was. Now, Mean Girls was not the only musical nominated as best. There was another one nominated, and that was the SpongeBob musical. Yes, in case you didn't know, people are dancing around on stage, costumed as those cartoon characters. And this provides me with an opportunity to answer a question that a lot of you ask. And it's one of those where I always, frankly, I think I don't care. But the truth is I do need to care because it's a question that anybody would have. Why isn't it Sponge Robert? That's not what people ask. But people are often asking, why is Bob the nickname for Robert? Why is Dick the nickname for Richard, etc.? That's not profanity. So why are those the nicknames? You know, it's one thing if somebody named Edward is called Ed. But what's going on with Robert and Bob? Why that? Well, it has to do with changing tastes in humor, basically. So Robert, Rob, and then it was considered funny a very long time ago on the Windy Island to not say Rob, but Bob. Ha ha ha. Rob, Bob. You change the sound and well, hee hee, isn't that funny? And next thing you know, it kind of settles in. Same thing with Richard. And then naturally you might start calling Richard a Rich or a Rick. And then if you're calling somebody Rick, well, you know, you could change the sound around and then Rick is a dick. Ha 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 ha. Just like William, Will, well, why not say Bill? And so they did. Now, that seems a little forced. That is not what we would consider witty today, I think, on either side of the ocean. But, you know, humor changes. And in terms of people and languages and what's considered clever and, you know, what's fashionable, you never know. And really, the whole Rob, Bob, Rick, Dick thing seems much more ordinary. If you look at something, for example, in South Asian languages, where you have these cute little echo terms. It's part of speaking the language. And so, for example, Tamil is spoken in the south of India and also on the teardrop isle, Ceylon, <laughs> Sri Lanka. Interesting. Tamil is no more related to Hindi and its relatives than, say, Finnish is related to French. And so the Indo-Aryan languages and what's called the Dravidian languages, of which Tamil is one, completely unrelated, but they share space. In Tamil, if you want to say tiger, you say puli. Okay. If you want to say tigers and stuff, for example, like tigers and stuff, then you'll say puli kili. So you take the key syllable and so puli kili. And that means ah oh, tigers and stuff. If you want to say sneezing and stuff, I'm sure people say that all the time, you would say tumi kini. And so you have that key and you, you tack it on. In Hindi, if you want to say mango, well, that's um. If you want to say mangoes and stuff, then it's amvam. These kind of echo words. Well, if you've got puli kili, tumi kimi, amvam, well, then rob, bob, hee rick, dick, hee Same thing, same people. It's just different things are considered cute and clever and ways to pass the time until you die in different places. And so, tumi kimi kimi, by the way, kimi, kimi, kimi. The composer of Mean Girls is Tina Fey's husband, Jeff Richmond. And Jeff Richmond also does the scoring for The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And that show 
has a remarkable theme song. It's time that somebody pointed this out, or at least I feel like pointing it out. Listen to the theme song of Kimmy Schmidt. That's incredible music. I mean, it's easy to just kind of forget it because it's also a wonderful montage that they do over it. Who would watch that queer show about a woman who was kept underground by Don Draper and comes out? And why would the theme song sound like Prince? Listen to all of the layers in that. Just wondered. And by the way, yes, there's cursing in the song, but that was them. And it wasn't me. So it doesn't count. Margaret... And Peggy, now that one seems a little harder, but it's actually quite natural. You've got Margaret, and imagine you're saying Mag, Mag, okay, ah. Now, where might ah go? It's going to go somewhere. It's not just going to sit there. And where it went was ag. And so, Mag, Mag, the sounds are right next to each other, Mag, Mag. Well, that was cute for a while, but vowels keep moving. So, mog, mag, what's close to it? Like meg, right? So, mog, mag, meg, because a and e are close. It's just like the American person today who, instead of saying, let's go to bed, really is saying something closer to let's go to bed, let's go to bed, eh, eh. So, mog, mag, meg. So, there you go. So, Margaret has already become meg. Then you get into this kind of funny thing. So, you know, ricky dicky, and so you get meg, <laughs> peg. So that's how you get from Margaret to Peg. And that's how you get the best song ever written. Isn't this the best song ever written? I've been hearing that song since I was, you know, extremely stoned one night in college in It took me about seven times, so it would have been October of 1982. And you can listen to it again and again and again. I've probably heard it seven million times, and it still just gets my serotonin going. Or one more, John and Jack. Why? Well, this time it was the Dutch, like in Austin Powers, where the Rob Lowe character (laughs) doesn't like the Dutch. Well, the Dutch are fine with me, but Dutch had a minor impact upon English. There were Dutch tradesmen who inhabited England for a certain period. They really kind of got around. And so for them, they take John, except its early form, Johan, and they put kin on the end of it because kin is their diminutive. Any word with that kin on the end, that's a Dutch business. So you have Johankin. So that's like little Johnny Johnny. Johankin. Well, that becomes Yankin. That becomes Yankin. That becomes Jankin. Remember the palatalization? So t ch so y j y j Yankin Jankin Jack. And so next thing you know, you have a nickname for John that doesn't sound anything like it because of a little squirt of Dutch. So that's how these things happen. Really, it's not any one systematic thing. There's a little story with each one of those name pairs. There are various processes that could happen. In any case, you want to hear a SpongeBob song? 
Me either, really. But, you know, to be fair, actually, there are some good ones. One of them was written by They Might Be Giants. This is I'm Not a Loser. Listen closely to the words. When others see me, they can't see the nobody that isn't there. Hold on. That's a triple negative. You can't not see nobody because I'm not nobody, which can't not be seen. Let me start over. My life's not empty. They don't not like me at all. I don't not leave the house because I don't not prefer to stay at home. I don't stink. I'm not a waste. I'm not all alone in thinking that I am not all alone. Maybe I am a loser. <laughs> hey, Squidward. Huh? You're not delirious with despair, and you're not calling true things false. Hey, Squidward. This is weird. You're not hallucinating this sea anemone chorus line at all. I'm not. By the way, you know how sometimes you fall in love? Well, this week I'm in love with Michelle Wolf. I want to have her babies, even though she doesn't want any. I'm just at please watch her Netflix show. And no, nobody is paying me to say that. Michelle Wolf, I, I'm quite obsessed. Just this week. I just discovered her this week, except for the big scandal a few weeks ago. Now we come to the third musical that was nominated, and that was the musical version of Frozen. Yes, that is now on stage, and that means that if you have children or nephews, you're going to be seeing it because that thing is going to be playing all over the world until all of us are dirt. And Frozen gets you thinking about the past tense and the past participle. I'm sure that's what everybody thinks as they go see it. And so something like Freeze... And then frozen, one of the things that makes learning English hard is those irregular verbs. And something that's interesting about these past forms that are irregular is that they are changing all the time, too. It's easy to think that you're getting them wrong or somebody else has gotten them wrong. But really, in the grand scheme of things, they're like a kaleidoscope. They never sit still. And so, for example, way back, early 1800s, William Cobbett. He was one of those people who did everything because back then there wasn't as much known and people didn't have as much to do. So he's an author. He was a statesman. And in 1818, he wrote this guide to using English properly to his son. And there are all sorts of things in it that seem very strange to us. He didn't like awoke. He thought that was a mistake. Didn't like blew for blow. Didn't like built. Didn't like burst, clung, dealt. Dug, drew, meant, spat, stung, swept, swam, threw, or wove. To him, all of those forms were wrong, and he wasn't crazy, and if he was eccentric, he wasn't so eccentric that he couldn't get this book published. It's really just that the language, as he spoke it at that place and in that time, was different, and his life straddled the Atlantic Ocean, and so this wasn't just that he was British or he was American. In a way, he was both, and that gives us a little window into how fluid these forms are. Or, for example, you know, what is the past tense of shit? Is it shitted? Or is it shat? It kind of feels like neither one is right, but shat 
was never actual English. That's something that people made up as a joke in the 1700s. It was kind of like, you know, if you say sit and then you have sat, well, then why not shit and then shat? <laughs> that was thought of as funny. That's certainly funnier than Rob, Bob, Rick, Dick. This is not profanity. By the way, this is lexicography. And so really, these things are quite fluid because I would say that there is no past tense of the word shit. It's a strange thing. Or snuck. If you talk about sneaking, I sneaked in or I snuck in. I would prefer snuck. I think most of you probably would. And that marks us as people living now. That really only started the dominance of snuck about 1960. So people in Mad Men, most likely Don and Betty Draper would have said sneaked. Snuck really jumped only about 50 or 60 years ago. These things just kind of happen or frozen. You know, in early Middle English, it wasn't frozen. That word was froar, froar. So I freeze and then the lake has froar. You can find it in Milton, froar of all things. So the musical would be called froar. Our sense that we often have that the past tense or the past participle forms should be something different is because really they often are. There was a commercial for... I think some kind of orange juice back in the early 80s where they were trying to be cute and funny in order to make you buy their orange juice. And they kept saying that the juice was fresh squozen. I found it kind of twee and annoying. And I think they had that kind of crummy animation and they were trying to make you buy that orange juice. Couldn't find that. But of course, the Simpsons can always help us. Here is Millhouse talking about how he would like things to go with squeeze. So here's Millhouse. Hey, Bart. Here he goes. Hey, Millhouse, how's the lemonade business? It's clearly booming, Bart. I don't even want any. I just bought a pity glass. <gasps> We're squozing our whole supply to the lemon tree. Anyway, I have heard those frozen songs. I have heard those frozen songs so many times. I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and I'm sorry, I am not playing one of the love is an open door. No, 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 just can't do it. But I'm sure that some of you are aware that there's a song from Frozen called Let It Go. It's interesting if you think about translation, because these Disney movies, they broadcast these all over the galaxy. And because they're for children, they have to actually dub them. They can't just do subtitles. It's an interesting way to get a sense of other languages is to find the Disney dub, if you already know. I learned a lot of Dutch from doing that with Beauty and the Beast. I will spare you that. But let it go. You've got three syllables, and you've got to have an accent on the third. And suppose you're a language that has a whole lot more prefixation or suffixation that isn't as terse as English tends to be. I've often thought, how do they translate let it go into other languages? Apparently in French, it's libéré, délivré, that's cute. In some countries, it seems like the translator didn't completely get it or there was just nothing else to do. In Icelandic, the way they say let it go is this is enough. <laughs> I don't think that quite sums it up, but maybe it sounds different in native Icelandic. In any case, we might want to hear how let it go goes in some other languages, or at least I wanted to know. And so I guess if I'm going to do that, I can't assume that all of you have heard let it go 400 million times. And so let's have a little clip. This is Adele Dazim singing let it go. This is a little piece of it. Let it go. Let it go. 
never bothered me anyway. Okay, so here's how it goes in Russian. It translates as let it go and forget it. I guess that works. And then here it is in Hebrew. I just, I always like seeing things done in Hebrew. As many of you know, I have this thing about Hebrew. We never quite got over each other. It was a problem. And so here it is in Hebrew. Lots of releasing and breathing and going to the end. So you can hear Let It Go in all these different languages. My hat is off to the translators. You know, it's interesting having little girls when Frozen is around. There's going to be a generation of 20-something women who collapse into happy tears at the thought of Frozen. And people who are much older who raised children who loved Frozen who are going to just cry bitter tears whenever they hear the songs from Frozen. But it's interesting watching them. Dolly's all into girly princess stuff. And more than Vanessa was at the same age. Dolly's six, Vanessa is three. And I'm assuming Dolly's going to grow up and she's going to be all, mm-hmm, and Vanessa's going to be kind of, mm. you never know, watch. When Dolly is 19, she's probably going to go back in time and have an affair with J.D. Salinger and come away hurt and write some memoir. And Vanessa's going to be 30, dancing around in her bedroom, pretending to be Vanessa Hudgens. You know what won as best musical? The one that you're least likely to have heard of. It's called The Band's Visit. Very interesting, quiet little show. And the word visit is an interesting, quiet little word. It teaches us a little lesson about words that are very similar and have the same meaning and people get beaten up for not distinguishing them. You know, we could be nicer to each other about such things. And so, for example, here's one that I actually only learned the other day. Rebecca Shapiro, thanks for this one. I was faking it in the kitchen when I was kind of nodding and taking a sip of my wine. Nobody had ever said anything about this to me. So I looked it up. Nauseated and nauseous. So apparently nauseated is the queasy feeling. And nauseous is how you describe somebody who's causing the queasy feeling, that nauseous person, because the nauseous person makes you nauseated. There's a fine distinction. That's a cute thing. That's if you don't want the ketchup to get on your scrambled eggs. But it got me thinking about something like visit. Of course, no, it didn't at the time. But here on the show, I'm going to pretend. And so think about something like where visit came from. It came from ultimately the Latin for to see, videre, okay? Now, videre doesn't sound much like visit, but talk about past participles. The past participle of videre was visum. That was seen. So videre, visum. Well, after a while, people just in a kind of a folky, what the heck kind of way, made a new verb out of visum. And you had visere. And that meant not to see, 
but to go see somebody as in to visit them. That's what the meaning was. And so videre, visum is seen. Then people start saying visere, and that is to visit. Meanings that are close that some people may sometimes have confused, but that's how it went. And actually, there's a little more to the story that actually illustrates this better. There was a frequentative ending in Latin, meaning that you tack this onto a verb to indicate that you do something on a regular basis, that you do it a lot, or in general, in languages, the frequentative gives a verb a kind of a kind of sense. And so that's the technical term. So curere, to run, then cursare, that's adding the frequentative ending, that's to run around. And so or venire, to come, Okay, but then ventitare, to come frequently. Then for visere, you have visitare. And that first meant to visit often. So you go visit somebody a lot. Yes, they had a word for it. Oh, goodness, I'll bet it had something to do with their culture. So visitare. But then what basically happened is that what first meant to visit often just came to mean to visit. And then we ended up borrowing this from French, and that's why we have visit. So there was just this kind of collapse. You can imagine somebody sitting in an upper middle class kitchen in ancient Rome, like in a, in a villa, and saying, no, 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 visitare is supposed to mean visiting often. Visere is what you use when you just visit once. And then somebody probably nods and drinks their bad wine. And then, you know, next thing you know, here we are just using visitare to mean to visit. The band's visit is interesting in that it's about an encounter between people who are Arabs and people who are Israelis. And so an Egyptian band gets stuck in a tiny little Israeli town where nothing ever happens. And so here's a Broadway musical where you actually hear some Arabic. This is a pretty song sung by Monk, the person best known to most of you as Monk. This is Tony Shaloub singing Eat Gara'a. Drink deeply of the loneliness, of the joy. You are the loneliness. You are the joy. It garra, it garra, it garra, it garra, garra. It garra, it garra hum, and farra, it garra Arabic is an interesting thing. If you're speaking to an Arab, then chances are that they speak, yes, they, they speak two languages plus the one that they're talking to you in. That's because Arabic is really many languages. There's the standard and then there are the colloquial forms, which often are as different from the standard as the Romance languages are from Latin. So, you know, standard Arabic for nose is umph, which sounds like, to me, it sounds like an elephant's nose, like umph, but umph, 
That's nose. In Egyptian, that, why don't I say it without my voice cracking? In Egyptian Arabic, the way they say nose is manahir. It's a completely different word. That's the word that you would use on your mother's knee. Then anf is the word that you hear on TV or you use in school. To see, ra'a. That's the standard word. Shaf is what people say in real life. So that's as if an Italian typically spoke both Latin and Italian and kind of thought of them as the same language. And then you're talking to them in English or French or something like that. Arabic is wonderful that way. It's why I've never really learned Arabic because I feel like I'd have to learn the two languages and therefore I'd be using two languages badly and laughed at twice as much as I am when I try to use other languages. But as somebody used to tell me, there's a lot of Arabic. It is a magnificent thing. The composer of the band's visit is David Yazbek, and he is always amazing. He is actually my favorite of the newer Broadway composers. His other shows are The Full Monty, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. And, you know, to tell you the truth, the band's visit is very special music, but if you were going to do Yazbek, I'd recommend one of those first three scores first, and probably one of the first two, and probably Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. So I want to go out playing a song from that one. This is called Chimp in a Suit. And it concerns how a certain Frenchman feels when a rather vulgar individual is being passed off as a gentleman. Just listen to these lyrics. Dress up a monkey in Armani. He may seem precocious and cute. Despite all that primping, you still got that chimp in a suit. Teach him the second verse of Swanee and most of Moon River. To boot, sure people will keep, but you still got an ape in a suit. Spritz him tirouette with the eau de toilette, and you're still gonna get a stench. Dampen him well in a quart of Chanel, it won't cover the smell. I should know, I'm French. Take him to see Don Giovanni, show him Cezanne's lovely fruit. Jim to cook from Escoffier's book. He's still a gorilla on crutch. You still got that chimp in a suit. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. The show is edited, as always, by Mike Volo. And I'm John McWhorter. And I got through it without any cursing. God damn. <laughs> well, there's a last time for everything. And by the way, you heard it here first. My agent and I have just decided. You know what my next book is going to be about? Cussing. You do will change that. He's still just a stinky little minky and a dinky little salt. And a cheap little head. 